Namaste. So we are continuing with the writings of Sri Aurobindo and uh, today will be the third part of uh, collected works of Sri Aurobindo volume 20 which is about the renaissance of India. As we know this book was initially titled as the foundations of Indian culture in SABCL volume but subsequently this is the new title and under it there are few sections we have already covered some of them the renaissance in india what really it should be what are the lines along which the renaissance will take place and shurbindo reminds us yes in a sense to talk about the renaissance in india uh, doesn't make um, a real solid sense because already indian civilization one of the oldest civilization actually the oldest according to some and uh, this civilization has continued in some way or the other without really ever getting completely into the oblivion or the past that is something very unique about indian civilizations its history and not history it has remained alive through countless books seers sages scriptures through the living realizations and something of this culture has permeated into every aspect of indian life so this is something very interesting and we can't just use the word renaissance the way it is used in the western context because in the western context the entire what they used to call as paganism and other things is gone completely so uh, then christianity came and then a rationalistic uh, understanding of life but here life has been one unbroken continuity and we shall see what is the reason why india has been able to do that then indian culture and external influence shurbindo recognizes that there are attacks on indian culture it looks like he is talking today or yesterday as i said and the reason is uh, he gives the reason that uh, there is a kind of clash of civilization taking place and clash is the first effort towards a clasp and understanding understanding comes later but first there is a clash and if one can go through that process then eventually a greater understanding will come but clash involves that each unit tries to completely overpower and dominate the other so europe tried to dominate asia asia not yet tried but now we can see asia is rising and basically it was a clash between europe and asia but when we talk of asia just as when we talk about europe we mainly think of greece france and rome these are the three things that come to mind and if you go a little further then england but england is of a different category altogether and if you talk of asia you primarily think of india china is a very old civilization but uh, we know all that has happened here and there and that is a different um, you know uh, talk altogether shubindu doesn't touch upon that so when we talk about europe and clash of asia there are political overtones in it and the reason why the western powers which came and occupied india they knew that if we have to really occupy a place for good we must change the culture of the people make them feel that they are inferior because then people get converted and when they get converted half their strength is lost you know you don't fight your own people it's like making them feel you are our own we are one people see what is happening today in many parts of india with regard to the arabic culture which came here and settled now people change their names they change their customs and they forgotten they are son of the same mother so there is a fight because people don't know there is an identity issue which way do we go so something like that was attempted all uh, all these powers which tried to occupy other territories tried this and uh, well with india they really uh, in a sense not only failed they went back enriched so those who continued to stay the anglo indians if you look at the way they celebrate the culture is very different it's because they got into that indian uh, mood something of india permeated and also they carried back things of india among the many things that were looted one of them was the bhagavad gita so not only did we give kohinoor but we gave something far more precious Uh, or rather invaluable which uh, is still having its effect on the western world so this is how the external influences are operating how to counter it all that we had discussed last time and then there is this provocative title 
based on William Archer's book, Is India Civilized? And based on that, Arthur Avalon wrote a rejoinder that, well, uh, not only is it civilized, it is one civilization which can civilize the whole world, if I have to put it in one sentence. And Shubhendra picks that up and then he himself speaks about and says how we have to counter these things and we have to counter it aggressively. But by aggressiveness, Shubhendra did not mean pick up a stick and start beating. <laughs> that is the task of another kind of, uh, you know, uh, if of course you are attacked by swords, you have to counter that. <laughs> but when a civilization is attacked, there are two responses people make. One is that they go rigidly shut themselves in a box and they start saying everything that is Indian is good. Now that's not the way to really counter because we lose the opportunity to grow when there is a criticism leveled at us. And the second thing Shurabindu says we have to also learn to see how the West views us. There are many things which perplexes them. For example, a simple thing like opening the uh, shoes outside a temple. Because it's dirty. So why do we open the shoes? Uh, this whole idea of Charnamrit is an anathema to the Western world, you know. That it's dirty and how are you taking? Because the mind is centered around hygiene. Now, unless you tell them there is something greater than the material view of things, it is not understood. So people said, okay, you may say whatever, but this is our culture. So, but actually it is not just about hygienic or unhygienic. Uh, always India recognized that there is something greater. There are greater and greater levels of determinism and the highest of course is the spiritual and the divine. So whatever was touched by the divine became prashad. And when there was prashad, all other considerations went into the background. This is the whole idea behind it. So we need to discover our own strengths, our own uniqueness and then we need to get back in the way, not only the way they understand, but present it in a proper way, what exactly Indian culture is. Not merely going to a shell and say, if you are wearing a burqa, we'll have a parda. That's not the way. Or if you are liberal, we are also liberal by inviting anything and anybody and everybody into, you know, our inmost chambers. That's, that will create a confusion. We have our own idea of liberality. So, there was a small little example I can share. All these ideas are from this book. Somebody told me that West has focused so much on individuality. What about India? We are missing it. So, I had to say that no, it's, it's not true. The difference is that in the West, individuality is an egoistic, selfish kind of individuality. I must safeguard my interest. And for that, for my enjoyment, for the pleasure, I'll do what I feel like. Whatever I wish, I'll do that. In India, individuality was subordinated not to society but to dharma. So an individual had to grow but keeping in mind the lines of dharma. He was not supposed to do anything he feels like. So there was a dharma which he had to align himself to. Both the individual as well as the society had to align to the dharma. And this was a very unique way so that we never lost hold of the core truths. So there, that's what we, we will read today. Then there is this uh, fourth um, series of essays, A Defense of Indian Culture, which consists of five beautiful, wonderful essays, a, a rationalistic critique on Indian culture, Indian spirituality and life, Indian art, Indian literature, Indian polity. So here Sri Aurobindo starts bringing out the fundamental truths of Indian culture and the differences between the European conception of life and the Indian conception of life. So the European conception of life is that primarily he is centered in matter and the life instincts and the life impulses. But because when you center your life like that, the civilization can go into a completely anarchic state. So they bring in reason. So there are these two balancing forces. One is a life centered around life impulses, life instinct and material existence, comfort, pleasure. But it is recognized that if we live like that, life will become completely chaotic. So there is this power of the mind called reason brought in. So there are rules and regulations which govern life. So this appears very tangible, very 
you know something which uh, which appeals to reason that yes that's how it should be and along with that the there is a little bit of sense of the beyond giving it undertones of religion so sunday you go to church and you have nice uh, music or some psalms are said the priest says something and you have it's a belief system you believe it but you are free not to believe in it so it appeals to the modern mind and all the rest that india speaks about about spirituality spirit all this sounds to us abstract to the average european mind but in indian thought the highest thing was not a life of matter and senses but spirit now this is the beauty and all this was not excluded from life that's what shubhendu says that when he speaks about indian spirituality and life so people raise an objection that well uh, we have too much of spirituality and spirituality but we have lost the contact with life but this is not true so all our life was impregnated and imbued with the glow of spiritual thought spiritual experience spiritual realization so it is a reverse view so on one side you have the material conception spirituality if at all has to be subordinated to this or is a private affair in india spirituality is the most important thing and all life must be suffused with it if possible transformed by it uplifted by it refined by it so this is a fundamental difference the second fundamental difference is that with regard to the conception of man so if you look at the western world there are two conceptions of man one is he is a social animal he is a two legged worm if you want to put it <laughs> whose whole business is to eat enjoy sleep have progeny and die this is the scientific materialism that conception of man second conception which is religious is he is a fallen being now it is very difficult to say which one you would like to choose <laughs> if you either you pick and choose you are an animal doesn't sound too bad given when you compare human beings with animals uh, or the other is you are worse you are a fallen being you are in hell and uh, you have been actually punished why punished god knows because some ancestor committed a crime by eating an apple and uh, you know you are punished so what do we do well the only way is you have a belief and you will be redeemed now this is very difficult to accept which one so of course social animal sounds a little more reasonable and plausible and perhaps this is the reason why it is losing its charm because there is nothing in it which can endure what is the indian conception of life in uh, of man indian conception of man is that man thou art divine it just that you have forgotten it because your divinity is covered by ignorance you remove it recover your own divinity so you are not a fallen being you are in your true nature divine so always indian thought Uh, you know spoke about this double nature we find beautifully in the gita shubhendra speaks about the double soul in man so one is our true nature which springs from the soul and the second is the coverings which have come up because of the evolutionary process so we have in us the animal which still continues to uh, growl and you know look for its feeding space and it is there which is there even we have pre animal you know past we have the asuras the rakshasas the previous human evolutionary layers so we have lust greed all the six enemies kama krodha lobha mohamad they are all covering they have to be discarded they are not our true nature so indian thought always distinguished between the true soul and the desired soul so the, the desired self so this is the indian conception of man and the third is that god is not just up above in heaven so many time when i hear some of the people who say you know wo kya kar raha hai upar baith ke maine kaha kiski baat kar whom are you talking about this is not how the sanatan dharma conceived god this is how christianity and islam conceived the divine and the mother said it was so difficult even for her at one point of time to get past this because you grow up in a conception that god is up above there and he is just with a carrot and rod ruling the world like a ceo is a very anthropocentric view of god it is not indian thought which is anthropocentric view it is a european thought which is anthropocentric so god is somebody sitting there like a ceo he created the world like a ceo floats a company 
and then God knows how because there are no producers, managers. Somehow, its relevance starts only when human beings come. It's like in a big company, the relevance of the company starts only when the product, semi-final product is being dished out. And you say, well, this is it. All the rest is no relevance. So, animals and material world, they have no relevance. But in Indian thought, because of the acceptance of evolutionary process, there is the relevance of every layer, every stage. And who is God? He is not only above. Above is not in the skies, in the blue heavens. Above is transcends this cosmos. So, above literally here is paratpar, that which goes beyond individual and the cosmos. But he is also in the cosmos and he is also in the individual. So this conception of uh, the divine is, you know, so wonderful uh, in the Indian thought. So this is, these are some of the basic things. Shobindu speaks here about Ramayana, Mahabharata, the Puranas, the Vedas, the Upanishad. And that would of course, uh, would need a whole series of talks. But also we must remember, uh, on all these works he has also spoken elsewhere. So it is not enough just to read this part and say one has understood what Shirobindo has to say about the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, and we should be very careful about part quotes, which I'll you know show how it can be misunderstood because I often see all kinds of part quotes floating around. Uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes they find a way even on the ashram notice board, and it is so. <laughs> so we have to understand that we have to read everything that Shirobindo has said on a subject. So now we come to some of the passages. Uh, so one of them is, one by one, Shobindo speaks about the main fundamental truths of Indian civilization. And he says, if we have to counter this attack, we must be aware what these truths are. Just like in synthesis of yoga, he starts by saying, that world today is moving towards a new creation. And in that new creation, all that from the past, which still is utilizable, will be kept. And all that is not necessary will be discarded. But then he also says it won't be kept just like that. It has to undergo its modification according to the Yuga Dharma. But before that, it must be understood correctly. And he says, one of the things which are going to be useful is Indian yoga. But Indian yoga must first discover itself. Even now, in India, when we use yoga synonymous with asanas, we need to understand that asanas are one aspect and even what really asana is. So we need to rediscover yoga ourselves before we can speak about Indian yoga going to the world. So here he says, the ancient civilization of India founded itself very expressly upon four human interests. Look, those who say Indian thought is otherworldly. Desire, first, desire and enjoyment. Next, material, economic and other aims and needs of the mind and body. Thirdly, ethical conduct and the right law of individual and social life. And lastly, spiritual liberation. And actually in real life, if you see, human life journey, in the beginning, it is very natural. Desire moves us. Material enjoyment. As you grow through life, you sober down. You begin to understand. You want to know, okay, what is the way to live? You suddenly realize at 60, lucky ones much earlier, that well, this is not how we need to live. There must be something else you want to discover. Of course, by the time you discover, you say, okay, next next time. <laughs> so, that's one conception in Indian thought about rebirth, which is part of the evolutionary process. And then finally, the highest is the spiritual. So, Kama, Artha, Dharma, Moksha. And because India understood the need to go through these stages, see how beautifully they are aligned. It did not deny the desired self. So, there is the desired self. You can't crush it and jump to the spiritual. Because it will come up there and come in worse ways. It will be veiled as spiritual ambition. You will start eyeing on a particular chair of the main Mathadish. You will start wanting respect simply because of the robe you are wearing. You will start looking for money for whatever knowledge you may be imparting. 
So go through these phases. So there is this Kama, there is Artha. Then Dharma, the right law of living. And then finally you discover there is something which is beyond. So goal is always highest is Moksha. But all this is seen as a preparation. And because the goal is Moksha, the desired self is not allowed to deviate in any which direction. Just like in, in, uh, in the Western context, uh, basically it is accepted. Life is for enjoyment, desire, pleasure, comfort. But then reason is there to, okay, you enjoy life, but there is a certain rules and regulations imposed by the very nature of society. In India, that higher thing is not reason but dharma. So while you can enjoy, but there is dharma. So this is how we uh, have evolved over millenniums. That dharma is ultimately, and even till today, this is there in, that's why uh, you will see it, you can look at it both ways. You will see some politicians, you know, uh, and they will do all kinds of nonsensical things. Yet, you know, they will go to God and do all this. You will not find this in the European context, going to churches and donating money. Now people start doing it. But otherwise you will see this. Why? It's something inside. It's hypocrisy, obviously. But it is a kind of lip service one still wants to pay. Because this is how it has got inbuilt into the very fabric of Indian life. So he says, these are the four things. The business of culture and social organization was to lead, to satisfy, to support these things in man and to build some harmony of their forms and motives. Now you see, mother gave a very different understanding of it. Means in modern context, we can't follow that. That was the way. Now a new creation. No new creation, you can't say, okay, first 25 years I'll just enjoy life unbridled and then I'll have... So, but we must understand how it was built. So, mother gave a very beautiful, there is an essay of her, the four austerities and four liberations. And there she speaks of, for the mind, knowledge. For the body, beauty. And of course, we can add health and harmony. For the vital, power and joy. And for the heart, love. For the soul, love. So, this is how she made it. Yes, enjoyment, but not the Normal enjoyment. So, Shubindu gave it a very different, uh, I mean, he lifted it to ultimate heights. That what is the goal of spiritual perfection? Except in very rare cases, the satisfaction of the three mundane objects must run before the other. Fullness of life must precede the surpassing of life. The debt to the family, the community and the gods could not be scammed. Earth must have a due and the relative, its play, even if beyond it there was the glory of heaven or the peace of the absolute. There was no preaching of a general rush to the cave and the hermitage. In the ashram itself, Shurvindo's letters are there. He was not keen to take in adolescents and very young people into the ashram. So in the beginning, there were only three exceptions. And all three came because their father came or parents came. One of them, of course, came by himself and they were admitted and the mother took special care she, she said that because at this age you are bound to have certain tendencies and urges which will create an unnatural conflict inside so people are torn they either start developing guilt or they start developing things which are of a clandestine nature so go through it life itself is a great teacher and if you have the right orientation you are prepared for the life of the spirit this was the whole idea and then he says that you know how this synthetic character you see everywhere this worldly otherworldly are together woven and personally I feel one of the places where you most vividly find it is the classical Sanskrit literatures of which Kalidas stands as the epitome where you see this worldly and otherworldly so beautifully interwoven. Even many of Shurabindu's poems, you see how beautifully that Pururavad, which is based of course on Vikram Urvashi, how beautifully he weaves them together. Shurabindu's plays. So this is how life was seen. So first thing he reminds us, Indian civilization was not unpractical, only metaphysical, quietistic, anti-vital character. 
an anti-vital character only living in some hairy-fairy world could not have created things which even till today we wonder. It's not just about temples, but about even Dwarka, when we read about the description, the different Shastras. So Rishis were not just people who were uh, debating on philosophical systems. They were creators. And Shurabindu says they were passionate creators. They were not like sitting with Kamandalu and just sitting like this. This is a very misconception we have created. The Rishis were passionate and they created. So every Shastra had a Rishi behind him. In all the fields they were engaged. So whether it was medicine, whether it was, you know, archery, whether it was, uh, you know, languages, whether it was grammar, whether it was ethics, nyaya, everywhere, justice, judiciary, administration, polity, there is a Rishi. And the work of that Rishi was to create a synthesis between that discipline and the spiritual conception. So you will see dharma figuring out. So when there is this talk about archery and war, there will be dharma. Unlike, you know, that Chinese books who say what really war is about. War is about winning without shooting an arrow. With cunning, deceit, propaganda. That's not how an Indian thought will. You learn all the tricks of the trade, you become the best warrior. But a best warrior is not a best warrior unless he practices dharma. This was important in every area. That's why they were called as Shastra. So we had 64 Vidyas and so many Shastras. So Shastra is not just reading the scriptures as we understand. Unlike in Europe, Shastra is the religious book. So we say that is Bible, there is Gita. In India, everything was Shastra. So we have Vimana Shastra. All the science and technology about aircraft. But it comes from a Rishi. We have again Ayurveda which is a Shastra. But it comes again by the Rishi. So many such things existed. So it is not otherworldly. First thing we must always remember and we should be able to remind first of all ourselves and not start shunning life and remind everyone. How Indian ethics works? You have a do's and don'ts normally. Now sometimes life is not as simple as black and white. So he gives an example of two seemingly irreconcilable opposites. And see, that's why Gandhi was Christian, because he couldn't understand how ahinsa and actual expression in war can go together. So he gave a very symbolic interpretation of the Gita, which only his fertile mind could conjure. I mean, if you read just the Gita, forget about Mahabharata, you will know it is in the war context, because it starts by Duryodhana. You know, the armies are being described, the main characters are being described, everything is being described, the whole you know, Gita's setting is about the war. So, Shivindu says, Hinduism only incidentally strings together a number of commandments for observance, a table of moral laws more deeply. It enjoins a spiritual or ethical purity of the mind with action as one outward index. So, it is not so much about ahinsa outwardly that you keep your hands tied, but inwardly you are boiling with anger and we know how dangerous it can be. It can be devastating in worse ways. See, when somebody attacks you in an armed way, you can defend yourself. How do you defend against something which invisibly seizes you because of the ill will? Just, you know, a couple of days back I was explaining, you know, why we should deal nicely with people who are working for us. You know, what used to be called servants. Now, you must understand that they, there is no doubt that they have a consciousness which is obviously crude that's why their life is what it is and it's uh, uh, it is something which liberal thought can't understand you know <laughs> so I saw today a video going around and a man all you know tearful and full of well that's not how they feel <laughs> because that, for that fellow holiday means most of them to drink and just get drowned in that not all of them the times are changing but that's how but still when you deal with them, you should deal with respect and dignity. Keep them where they should be. There is a right law of work, professionalism, everything. But why? Why? There is another reason. Among, apart from the fact that everybody has the divine presence. So there is that fundamental equality. But there is a distribution of work. His work, his seva, his puja is through works. And he should do it well. It's good for him. But more importantly, when you react, he can't react. 
because he is to listen when you are angry. So what does he do? He doesn't express anything. But all the anger he throws upon you, surrounds you like an ill will, makes you sick in worse ways. Because he has no choice, no option. So when he throws ill will, it will be in worst of ways. Probably with God knows what kind of abusive words and languages. This inner understanding of life is what Hinduism brings to the world. So he says, it says strongly enough. So ahimsa is an inner state. You can fight with ahimsa in your heart. Meaning thereby ahimsa. Non-injury. Will is not to injure. Will is not to harm. Will is not to hurt. Will is not to enjoy somebody's misery. Will is to defend rightfully. Will is to take your rightful place, your rightful share which is being snatched away. That's where war is necessary. Not with the will to hurt, injure, blow away a, you know, a whole city. That's never an Indian thought. So he says so beautifully. It says strongly enough, almost too strongly... Thou shouldst not kill. See, sometimes Shurabindu says many things in a very subtlest of subtle ways. In Savitri, several times I have you know, shown this. See here how he says. It says strongly enough, almost too strongly. Shurabindu is saying this overemphasis is not needed. Almost too strongly. Because when you overemphasize one quality over others, you are creating a door for falsehood. So he puts it very subtly. Almost too strongly, thou shouldst not kill. But insist more firmly on the injunction, thou shalt not hate, thou shalt not yield to greed, anger or malice. Look at the difference. It's not to take away somebody's wealth, booty. It's not to occupy a land that you will kill. But when it comes to defending yourself, of course you will take up arms and you will see this is the difference which uh, you know, uh, he brings in. This is the true Indian thought. Not what we hear from Gandhi that if, you know, um, if Jews are attacked, they should walk into the gas chambers because this way the Jews, the Nazis will be purged of their tendency to kill. What a strange idea. Its logical implication is keep sinning so that you will be purged ultimately out of sin. And to purge other people's sin, you should allow yourself to become a victim. So, anyways, thankfully, world is waking up to the other side of Gandhi. He had his good side. Everybody has their good side. But the other side, and uh, I really hope, as an aside, one day they will remove that uh, chashma and all that from the, no, from the rupee. The day they do it, people will become more honest. There will no more be hypocrisy. Right now, there is hypocrisy. Say one thing, do something else. So, the sooner the better. Anyways, that's not written here. So, that's so purely an opinion. So, he says, for these are the roots of killing. And Hinduism admits relative standards. A wisdom too hard for the European intelligence. Non-injuring is the very highest of its laws. Ahinsa, paramo dharma. Still, it does not lay it down as a physical rule for the warrior but insistently demands from him, he has to battle, but what he should not have, demands from him mercy, chivalry, respect for the non-belligerent, the weak, the unarmed, the vanquished, the prisoner, the wounded, the fugitive, and so escapes the unpracticality of a too absolutist rule for life. So how beautifully it reconciles. So that's why this, uh, the other day I was hearing, uh, it was very nice. I felt there is some truth in it. Uh, Sudhanshu Trivedi's uh, very nice thing that we keep hearing that Alexander asked, uh, you know, uh, Poros. Poros uh, is an anglicized name. So Puro. So he asked him that, now you are vanquished, Tell me what you want. And he said, as a king treats a king. And Alexander went back. Actually, this is very un-Alexander-like. If at all, it is very much Indian-like. It's only a Hindu king who having conquered Alexander, 
कैन आस्क हिम टेल मी हाउ यू वॉन्ट मी टू ट्रीट यू एंड वेन ही सेज ट्रीट मी लाइक ए किंग ही सेज छोड़ दिया माफ किया सो देर देर कुड बी क्वाइट सम ट्रूथ इन इट बिकॉज ही कोर्स हिस्ट्री सेज दिस ओनली रिटर्न इन ग्रीक हिस्ट्री इट्स नॉट रिटर्न इन इंडियन हिस्ट्री सो क्वाइट लाइकली वेन दे वेंट बैक एंड पीपल आस्ट की क्या हुआ था साहब वेल वी लॉस्ट टू द इंडियन किंग ऑन द बॉर्डर्स आफ्टर कॉन्करिंग ऑल दिस वर्ल्ड सो हाउ टू शो योर फेस बिकॉज ही इज ए गॉड पुत्र देवपुत्र सो द बेस्ट वे वॉज टू से अरे वी कॉन कट दैम बट वी लेट दैम गो विच इज वेरी अनलाइक सो बट इन इंडिया दिस वॉज इन बिल्ट दैट वेन यू हैव कॉन कर्ड वेन समबडी हैज बीन वैंक्विश इम्प्रिजेंट डोंट ट्रीट मिस ट्रीट सो दीज वे द कोड ऑफ कंडक्ट सो ही सेज दैट द कंसेप्शन ऑफ लाइफ the power of the forms and the inspiration and vigor give the value to life then the other thing which indian thought brought out was that there are stages so there it speaks about uh, of course stages in one life the four goals so we you have the four ashramas corresponding to them so it's a student must study you know i sometimes get a question i don't feel interested in studying if god realization is the only thing why should i do it when i had come here then somebody told me something very similar he says you know i wanted to study history and then i met one of the uh, saints and he says you have to realize god why do you want to study history and he gave up i said but even if you understand you realize god you will understand nothing about anything it will be a very personally useful realization but what about manifestation so you need to study when mother was asked why should we study she gave a very different answer she said to build the mental muscles to develop wideness and plasticity when the truth comes you don't go crazy and mad and it finds in us a supple and wide instrument to express <laughs> what a beautiful thing so the student's task was to study one odd shukdev is okay but then during that period he had to master concentration master the life impulses learn to be really a conqueror not somebody who shrinks from life but somebody who meets the challenge of life and comes out a victor this was the whole idea and then when you turn to god is a very different thing then thaka hara aadmi insaan you know who has no choice so he goes to so this is not how so the stages and then he speaks about what dharma is but uh, just for reference those who want to know more about dharma uh, read shurbindo's essays on the gita where in reference to shurbindo uh, you know shri krishna's that yada yada hi dharmasya glani bhavati bharata shurbindo reveals to us what really is dharma dharma is one of the subtlest of conceptions that's why the gita says people don't understand what is karma what is akarma what is vikarma what really dharma is it's very subtle so the european mind understands dharma as a set of rules do's and don'ts but that's not how indian thought has ever seen it even in dharma it brought in the element of relativity depending upon a upon the stage and evolution so what is dharma at one stage is not a dharma at another stage when we look at life like that then we understand the action of rama a ordinary person's dharma is to you know fight a case for his wife but rama has to is a king he has to change the law but first set the highest standard he has to undergo his own personal suffering he sets the highest standard of walking into the forest all through we see this life of dharma which rama leads so for rama even a slight deviation from dharma becomes a serious issue but he doesn't enjoin everybody is not expected to do that so this is how it understood the dharma at once religious law of action and deepest law for nature is not as in the western idea a creed cult or ideal inspiring an ethical and social value it is the right law functioning of a life in all its parts so there is a dharma war there is a dharma of politics shrimin to use this word somebody the other time they they was mentioning that you know so and so person uh, in let's say today indian politics but he is ambitious well in politics you are not uh, 
sitting for meditation and shunning the world is the dharma of politics should have been the same in politics you just can't be all the time you can remain silent you don't have to be untruthful you can remain silent which is golden but you can't say no i am going to always speak all that things truthfully honestly that's what diplomacy is about when you go and meet your uh, you know counterparts in different um, you know nations you don't start saying that you know we are hindus we are following this and we are going you don't do that you stay quiet you stay silent because it's a dharma of politics politics works like that there is something called as a sense of diplomacy you fulfill what you have to fulfill similarly there is a dharma of war you can't see in the dharma of war uh, you are holding the revolver pehle goli tu chala you can't do that it's about swiftness it's about strength it's about concentration once you have decided that here is an enemy you don't say that okay you know you will keep the gun in the center and whoever picks up you don't do that nonsensical thing it's a battle and you fight because you see that's what in mahabharata we can't understand it's the dharma of war war has started before that all thoughts have gone into attempts to negotiate placate even find the most amicable solutions even at the expense of losing everything except five villages but once the lines are drawn and the war starts then there is a dharma of war so when dronacharya suddenly is in despair so drisht duman doesn't stop now he is not the ideal kshatriya that way but in the dharma of war in the war context if you are disheartened go that's what we see when ravana was uh, you know hit by rama he is sarathi takes him away or karna when he is fallen Arjuna says no no because he is a kshatriya and he wants him to get a new chariot and he is trying to remember and he cannot remember so shri krishna says see he has the possibility of still striking you with brahmastra he is trying it you want to wait till he has loaded the brahmastra and then fight you know this has to be done do it so this is how when we look at it from that perspective it is the dharma of war in a war it's once you know this is a war which is dharma yuddh then you fight in the proper way everything indeed has its dharma its law of life imposed on it there is a dharma of the physician which is very different so a physician in ancient time was not supposed to charge money but there was dharma of the patient to safeguard so patient who died without paying the money to the physician was you know in trouble in the after world so there was the dharma of the teacher he never asked for money but there was the dharma of the student that he gave guru dakshina so this is how the indian life was woven everything indeed has its dharma its law of life imposed on it by its nature but for man the dharma is the conscious imposition of a rule of ideal living on all his members dharma is fixed in its essence but still it develops in our consciousness and evolves and has its stages there are gradations of spiritual and ethical ascension in the search for the highest law of our nature and that's why in one word dharma is all that helps us to evolve individually and collectively towards the highest this is dharma for that whatever you need to do it is dharma to look after your parents it is equally can be dharma when like buddha you leave everything and walk because that's necessity uh, for you now that is the necessity imposed on you by your own true nature so that's why arjuna shri krishna says that your own nature has called you to the war and if you shun it because of some mental conceptions because you have read some you know left liberal professors uh, and sanyasis so you will be doing something which is mithyachar so you will step aside and then you will itch for war your dharma is to fight but shubindu makes it clear but if shri ramakrishna or buddha asks shri krishna what should i do my heart is burning with anguish for the misery of the earth i want to walk away from the home shri krishna would do, not tell him do your duty he will say follow your inmost arch so dharma is something very very relative it changes from individual to individual from stage to stage there is a small little story i had read that in a temple somebody stole something which was of gold and he was caught and uh, 
he was given some punishment, whatever, one year or something and then. And still, and no, he was not punished. The deity saw the whole thing and protected him. Nothing happened to this man. So the priest's wife one day started saying that, see, I know that fellow has stolen because his wife confessed to me, meeting on the pond. Why don't you all see you are living life like a miser? Poor man, why don't you also pick up something? After all, you are serving God. You are at least justified. He was not even justified in doing it. Still see, God has protected him. Why don't you do it? So he trembles. Finally, he, the, you know, the worst sense prevails. So he goes and as he's about to steal something, the deity appears. And he says, you know, you'll get severely punished for it. He says, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I mean, I'm really poor. That man is a robber. He has stolen. You didn't do anything. He says, you know what? At his stage of development, it is his way of life. For you to do this is unimaginable. So now you see the priest dharma is very different from a robber's or a ordinary person. Dharma is poor. He picks up something. This doesn't mean steal from the temple or anywhere. But to understand the relativity of dharma which is there in Indian thought. So there are gradations of spiritual and ethical ascension in the search for the highest law of nature. All men cannot follow in all things one common and invariable rule. Life is too complex to admit of the arbitrary ideal simplicity which the moralizing theorist loves. So we don't have this kind of, you know, everybody the same thing. That sameness, that uniformity. And this is something which the European mind cannot understand. It says, Ek baat bolo. ki Should I kill or should I not kill? That's what Arjuna asked. Probably he was also educated somewhere like that. New thoughts must have come. Tell me, Madhav, should I kill or not kill? He said, no, 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 hold on. I'll first tell you about dharma. He said, no, no, my problem is to kill or not to kill. He says, that's a very, very secondary issue. I'm going to tell you what should be your inner state. Then do as you feel is the best thing to do. Look at the difference. It doesn't give a kind of moral commandment to everyone for all times to come. So this is how the um, dharma. Then he speaks about the chaturvan and that we know that how India created a social order. So it was everywhere incidentally. Even now it is there, you know. The professionals or, you know, knowledge-based people who sit at the top, even today. Then they are the politicians and administrators. These two have the largest chunk of everything. Then there are those who are engaged in business and commerce. It comes third. And they have to be in the good books of the other two. And the fourth one is uh, the people who are working with hands. Of course, in the West, the Shudra has been wiped out. Uh, everybody has picked up the hammer and this thing. But you have though that kind of, you know tendency, the, the Marxist culture divides into two, the, the haves and the have-nots. But Indian thought had a place for everyone and everything. Because everybody is not ready for everything. So they saw in rebirth a gradual evolutionary process. Man starts as the natural physical man and that time he will best serve the divine within and divine in the world by engaging with the physical life in the way that is beautiful, that is true. And if he does it, he gets sadharmagati. So the Shilpkar who created Murti was the man who by doing so was finding his path to liberation. It was not enjoined upon him to sit and meditate. He didn't even need to enter a temple premise. And the businessman who is not just greedy but who creates new things which are going to build beauty and harmony in the world, maybe a new gadget, and then circulates it, new means of generating wealth and putting it to create external beauty, needed to do that. And for the warrior to fight for what is true and right and just was his way towards liberation. And for the Brahmin, the, the, the class which was revered, to gain knowledge, to access knowledge, through inner meditation, through close study of things, detailed study, and then to impart this knowledge to
to the world was his consummation of his humanity. And beyond all these four was the spiritual man. And then Sri Aurobindo says that over a period of time, it degenerated into birth. But even there he says, look at Indian thought. They knew about heredity. So it was not that the idea of heredity was all bogus. There was some truth in it. Now today when a scientist says that, well, heredity partly determines even things in your nature. So, we don't say that, don't bring in birth element because it's science. So, it was a kind of science that there is a hereditary element which goes in. But later on, it became too much rigid, got fixed, fixated rather into heredity and outer work and therefore it degenerated. So, I see the story of Karna in a very different way. It is the story which is like a watershed story which shows that simply taking birth into account is not the right way. That's what Drona did. But of course, Drona had no choice because he was training only princes. He was on the payrolls to train only princes. But it's often portrayed that because he was, you know, Sutputra. Sutputra is not the issue, but because he was meant to train only the princes. But nevertheless, Karna, being a Kshatriya, ultimately, his inner nature prevailed. He discovered and he was trained by none less than the greatest of warriors, Parshuram. What did Parshuram do? He did not do anything except one thing. Don't misuse the Vidya. That's all that he did. People often make a big halabulu. See, he was nothing. He didn't take away all that he had taught him. He said, go into the world, use this, but under the guidance of dharma. The day you misuse it, you will lose. And this is a very fair thing that he ever asked in terms of if you want to say Guru Dakshina. And that's how Indian thought spoke about Adhikar Bhed. So, this was the social structure. So, even here we see it was not work the way we find in the West. But there was a spiritual impulsion that there is an evolutionary process and we must pass through these four stages. So, in the West it is just by work. So, they cannot understand the European mind cannot understand the caste system because it understands it externally. But that's not how the Indian thought understood it. It looked upon it as an evolutionary process. There was the spiritual element. And when you have arrived at the highest caste, didn't matter. Nobody would ask, Kabir ji, aapki kya jati hai? There is very beautiful, Jat na poocho sadhu ki, pooch Ask his wisdom. That's what matters. Because once you have gone beyond, you have completed your graduation and post-graduation and PhD. You are a master and the master has no caste. So it was inbuilt within the fabric and the equality of everyone. I think we'll stop here. There are a few more elements which we'll complete in the next so that we'll have a total picture and not rush through things. Because now toward the end, Sri takes up this question, a little promo, now, just the here is the first baffling difficulty over which the European mind stumbles for it finds itself unable to make out what Hindu religion is. You have gods, you have one god, you have scripture, you have many scriptures, you have no scripture, you have dharma which is like a <laughs> free-floating something, you have inner, you have subjective, you have many worlds. So, what is Hindu religion? Tell us. And Shivindra takes up this question. He says, when the European asks, where it asks is its soul? Where is its mind and fixed thought? Where is the form of its body? Then he describes what really is this Hindu religion. That's for next Saturday. <laughs>